Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning. Hour number two of Mornings uh, Without Carmen underway here on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot, usually her faithful producer, now faithful backup host or guest host. Good to have you with me on this Monday. Oh, today, it starts today officially, the Reading the Bible Together 2 Timothy series that we're doing. We've been doing these Reading the Bible Together series on and off over the last few years. And again, that's what it is. We're together reading the Bible. We have a reading plan. We got some uh, podcasts that are part of that. And it starts today. They start dropping today, but you can still join anytime just go to our website, MyFaithRadio.com, and be a part of reading the Bible together. Second Timothy, Paul had so much to say, his parting words to Timothy and to the church that speaks so much about our, about suffering and truth and godliness. Yeah, check it out in a study of Second Timothy. Join us reading the Bible together, MyFaithRadio.com. Get signed up and get that free study guide. Well, again, Mornings with Carmen, we urge you to pray the news, among other things, and a lot of news to pray about, especially when you look overseas. Now, Israel, first off, over the weekend, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had to go to the hospital again and now has a pacemaker after having some heart defect issues. So be in prayer for his recovery. Meanwhile, in Israel, Tens of thousands of Israelis protesting the plan to limit judicial power. They, uh, over the weekend, ended a 45-mile march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by blocking highways and chanting outside the parliament. Now, original plans uh, was to have the Knesset, the Israeli legislature, have power over their Supreme Court and select the majority of its judges, but they've been paring that back, but there's still a lot of angst over that. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem including this internal strife that is happening there. Meanwhile, Ukraine. Do you know what today is? 17 months ago today, February 24th of uh, 2022, is when Russia invaded Ukraine. What many thought would be over in a few days has now extended almost a year and a half. And yeah, we can talk about all the political ramifications. Just people. The people of that country have been, have been impacted and their faith has been shaken. I, I saw this news report at Premier Christian News about a bishop. His name is Bishop Miloka Petro Luchov. He's a, he's a Catholic bishop in that country and talking about how their buildings in his diocese have been turned into accommodations f- for those fleeing the war, including, and not only that, his parishioners, half of the Catholic families in that region have basically been housing internally displaced people in their own homes. Bishop Luchak highlighted the psychological and financial toll the wars taken on these internally displaced people, IDPs and locals alike, many of whom have lost all means of supporting themselves and their families. He said one aspect of the hardship is there just seems to be no end in sight. People are mentally fatigued. They're there. Then there's also... He said the physical injury of war, many people injured, possibly permanently. 
And he said that in these difficult times, we should not dwell on how things used to be or why our suffering isn't ending. As he's encouraging his flock, he's saying we should immerse ourselves in prayer and, and reflect on the meaning and power of, Caval- uh, of Calvary. Again, taking his people to the cross in the midst of this. Meanwhile, the war continues. Russia has been bombarding the southern port city of Odessa in Ukraine, killing at least one person over the weekend, injuring many others, damaging many buildings and landmarks, including the historic Transfiguration Cathedral of Odessa. This comes shortly after Russia pulled out of what has been called the Black Sea Grain Deal that kept Ukrainian grain flowing to the world markets. Many people, especially in impoverished countries, rely on that grain. Now, how might this affect not just the food and food security globally? How could this affect world security in general? To help us know about or think about that, Elizabeth Newman from the Moonshot team joins us in one minute here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Well, again, this is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. And as we're talking about, Ukraine still in the headlines. And now the attacks on the southern port city of Odessa, which for the most part, especially over the last year after the after a grain deal was struck between Russia and Ukraine and basically the world uh, was in place. Now that grain deal has fallen apart. And that's a big concern. And again, Elizabeth Newman, who's with the Moonshot Group, joins us now here on Faith Radio. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thanks again for joining us. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me. Okay. Give give us a bit of background on this grain deal and why it was so important for, well, not just Ukraine, but for the world. Well, Ukraine is, is often considered the breadbasket of Europe, and it provided uh, grain to all parts of the world. Um while it might not be as great a concern for for the United States, certainly in other areas like Africa, it is critical. And um, basically a deal had been made last year to keep the ports open, to keep grain flowing. Um, it it uh, In the last year, not um, probably not at the same levels as before the war, but for the most part, grain had been flowing um, and there had been no major supply disruption. Well, that changed this last week. Russia withdrew from that deal, um, basically com- taking some of the complaints that um, Putin has had about uh, certain sanctions that had been laid on him and and uh, turning them into demands, um, said, okay, fine, you're not going to let me have access to my banking systems uh, to be able to get payments. Uh, you're not going to get access to this port and this grain. Um so it it is very concerning uh, for the sake of those who rely on the grain. It it will lead to food price increases. Um, and as uh, most listeners know, while um, in the United States we have safety nets and we have uh, ways to help most people, those who um, are uh, on the margins, those who really are um, already hurting because of inflation pressures and and other challenges of the last few years, any any more increases in prices hurts um, and makes life that much more difficult, Um, but even more so for entire societies that are impoverished, um, like Africa. Uh, Putin did say he has a summit this this week with Africa that, don't worry, Russia had a great uh, crop of grain this year, and we're going to make sure you get fed. 
Um, so his his solution is that Russia will provide the grain, um, you know, certainly from the standpoint of not wanting people to starve. Um, glad that we can find some way that we can get uh, grain to those that need it. But um, I tend to not uh, take Putin at his word. I, th I think most of this is just bluster. Um, his main point is to apply pressure to the West to uh, get some concessions on some of these demands that he has. Do you think the uh, the West and the other industrialized nations will uh, concede to this, or what do you think might now, happen? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Um, and and I'll tell you the other piece of this that besides the grain makes me really uncomfortable is that up until now the the Black Sea has been. Um, accessible, not, we, the United States have not been putting our ships in there. We didn't want an incident um, to accidentally occur and lead to escalation with Russia. So our Navy has not been there, but for the most part, the waterways have been open. And um, the concern now is that Russia is uh, laying mines um, mm. around Gaza and other places. And so we're kind of in one of those moments where it's really um, an accident is really likely. And so one of the, um, uh, I was reading some of uh, Navy admirals, former um, former military guys, and, and the concerns they have is that anytime you start escalating, especially in areas where you have civilians and commercial traffic, we could end up in one of those incidents that leads to something much more devastating. If you think about World War One, it was the sinking of the Lusitania and um and and this kind of is that slippery slope you start escalating um in commercial spaces like the export of grain and this is russia's doing um but it's just all the more likely that we're going to end up with some incident that is so catastrophic that the world demands that it be responded to and and we end up in that tit for tat that can get really dangerous uh, from a security standpoint really quickly so how are you praying through this yourself? What are you praying about and what are you hoping for? You know, that's a good question. I I would I would say I continue to pray for um a peaceable solution, which I, I rationally I, I feel like is seems very um unlikely from a human level and all the more reason to pray for it. Um I continue to pray for Putin's removal. Uh, we we were I think talking uh, just last month about the the weird you know 48 hour coup that wasn't a coup and we still don't quite understand what was happening but there was this brief moment of oh maybe this is it maybe um, Putin is going to get removed by his own people um, he is a a man that does not strike me as um, not only is he inhumane uh, but uh, it, it strikes me that he's kind of backed against the wall and that um, tends to not go very well. So pray for restraint, pray for um, plans uh, that that might be underway to be thwarted and pray for the protection of um, uh, those that uh, continue to work and operate in the Black Sea and surrounding areas. Um, you know, there are many other countries that, you know, it's, it's the Black Sea surrounded by six other countries, and uh, they they are also being impacted by this change in uh, seaway navigation. So um, pray for the impact to to uh, to not uh, lead to more humanitarian crises. Mm -hmm. 
We're talking with Elizabeth Newman. She's with an organization called the Moonshot Team, and we're actually going to talk about that in just a moment, you know, because one of the things Moonshot does is interact with those who have, oh, you can say self-radicalized in some way, whether they are the far right or far left. You know, nobody really thinks, oh, I want to become a radical, but somehow they do. And how do you help people in those situations or those who are heading that way to come back and be people of peace. And I, I, this is a really interesting conversation that I hope to get to in about 90 seconds with Elizabeth here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. When you see somebody who radicalizes, gets involved in some far right or far left group, gets violent, you're kind of going, well, I knew them as a kid and they were so pleasant. What happened to them? Stuff happens. And there is, there's so many things that could be happening. And how do you intercede and how do you interact with this person to either help them get out or maybe if they're starting to veer that way to not radicalize? This is an interesting discussion, and we're going to have that with uh, with Elizabeth Newman. She's part of an organization called Moonshot, which is part of this. We've talked your the name Elizabeth Moonshot. What is Moonshot? What's the Moonshot team? Yeah, the Moonshot team is a group of like really amazing people. I've never, um, uh, as a personal note, it's been one of the the most uh, rewarding uh, jobs I've ever had to be able to work with the people uh, at Moonshot. Um, and they are everything from technologists to um, experts in various aspects of uh, extremist uh, ideology to social scientists and um, uh, psycholo- psychologists and clinicians and social workers. And, and we all share a common belief that uh, people can change. Mm-hmm. And um, we believe that uh, the the dr- psychosocial drivers behind why people radicalize um, uh, can be uh, discovered and and assisted uh, and and we believe the best place to do that is online because if you flash back 20 years ago when I was early um, involved in uh, counterterrorism in the Bush administration. Um, most radicalization was happening in person. You had to seek somebody out or maybe somebody would mail you a a CD or email you like a a little MP3 uh, file or something. But um, most of the radicalization was occurring face-to-face. About 10 years ago, that started to drastically shift. And now it is predominantly online and it happens much faster than it used to because you can... Um, access a lot more content mm-hmm. um, much quicker than you could if you were trying to meet somebody in person. 
Um, so consequently, if you want to intervene, the place you need to intervene is in the online space. You know what? Um, and, oh, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, when I was reading about what you guys do, how if somebody's doing a search about, you know, skinheads or whatever like that, there, there's another organization that uses a similar ta- a similar tactic. It's called Global Media Outreach. And if somebody's searching, you know, wants to know about Jesus, they're one of the first ones to, in their search engine, that's going to come up. And you're, you're trying to do something very similar, to intervene yeah. with somebody, but not to convert them to, but to convert them away. So explain how that's working. Yes. So Moonshot created the redirect method and um, much like an ad. So if you're searching for shoes, I, I need new shoes for my kid. Um, all you have to gonna... say is shoes and your phone picks it up and all of a sudden your social <laughs> right. media feed. It, it's crazy, but go ahead. It, it is great. Crazy. So you're going to, you might've typed in, I want to see Nike shoes and you're going to get an ad for Adidas, right? Like, so um, search engine optimization, there's a whole field of super smart people out there that are uh, designing um, the the way that we get served up suggestions of what we need to buy, right? Well, we're taking the same principles and applying it to people that are seeking harmful content. And over the last eight years since Moonshot um, has uh, been in existence, we've developed um, proprietary database of keywords that tell us uh, uh, better what people are searching for. Um, so it's not as uh, simple. If somebody were to just buy a Google ad today and try to redirect people, um, uh, which you certainly could, uh, that there's there's a bit of social science and psychology behind uh, both what we look for when somebody is searching something, um, as well as which ads get clicked on. So click-through rate's really important. Uh, otherwise, nobody's going to get redirected to something powerful. So let's say you type in, I want to join the KKK. Um, you might see an ad if we're working in the, in your area um, that says something like, are you feeling angry? Are you alone? And mm-hmm. if you click on that, you might be redirected to um, a national uh, crisis text line type of uh, service provider. Or if we have local service providers uh, you might go to a web page that, um, you know, with some content that's been curated for what we detect to be your risk level, um, and then a suggestion that you could connect with a local service provider. And over the course of the last year, we have disrupted 40,000 searches. Um, and what that means is we have way more views, but those are people that have actually clicked on those ads and gone to um, that that second web page, looked at resources, maybe even contacted uh, that service provider. Mm. And while I can't get into the details of specific cases, we, we, and, and the challenge in prevention is you never know what you don't, uh, what you've actually disrupted, but um, we're pretty certain that we've disrupted a, a, a handful of attacks uh, through this me- method. So um, it's, it reaches people where the radicalization is occurring mm-hmm. and it's reaching them with messaging that is not countering ideology. It's not your ideas are horrible. How could you possibly be a, um, a you know, like ISIS or uh, support white nationalism? It's not about countering ideology. It is about um, going past that and recognizing that people that are searching for that, something else is going on in their life and they need help. 
Um, and we are trying to find ways to get them that help. I wish we had time to talk about the president of Moonshot, uh, Vidya Ramalangan. Uh, probably, Ramalingam. Uh-huh. She's Ramalingam. a rock star. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, there was a great uh, short video I saw online. Uh, PBS is doing this Exploring Hate, Exploring Hopes segment. She was featured on one. An amazing lady who would actually go to these radical groups and just learn to interact with them. And learning the fact that, okay, a lot of the times what keeps pe- what draws people in and keeps people in such organizations is the community. Yes. That, so Very much so. It is about a see- seeking of belonging and purpose. Yeah. Um, it's about countering maybe a humiliation or a grievance that you've had. Mm-hmm. And when, when you realize that, and I'm not suggesting that everybody go um, knock on the door of their, you know, neighborhood uh, extremist group. But when you realize that w- what they're looking for is, the same thing that our faith offers. Jesus gives us belonging. Jesus gives us hope. Jesus gives us um, an answer to our grievances and takes our humiliation for us. Like, oh my goodness, we have the solutions that extremists are looking for through their extremist ideology. Mm. Uh, so not being afraid of those folks. So please don't um, take unnecessary uh, actions, but but if you have the opportunity to engage with somebody who is starting down that pathway, um, it, it, sometimes what they just need is to know that they're they're loved and they're understood um, and that you don't have to agree with their beliefs, but you can love them as Jesus loves them. Yeah. That is powerful in yeah. the disruption of radicalization. Yeah. One thing I wanted to get to, we don't have time right now, but okay, Moonshot is not a Christian organization, but... I can see so many Christian principles being lived out by what you're doing. So hats off to you and the Moonshot team. Thank you. Um, It is quite the honor to to get to work with them every day. All right. Elizabeth Newman, again with Moonshot, plus uh, you can find her on what used to be called Twitter at NEU, New Summits, and you can find her there on what's now X. Yeah, maybe we need to talk about what where we're going next, Paul. I I kind of I've, I've shrugged my shoulders at all of the new um, <laughs> options out there. We're changing the name, and I can't even call yeah. it a tweet anymore. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. Kind of new well, well, stuff we just have to wade through anyway. But thanks again, Elizabeth. <laughs> this is Faith thanks, Radio, Paul. and let's get the breakpoint commentary for today. Well, again, good Monday morning. This is Mornings Without Carmen. Carmen's on break today. She'll be back tomorrow. Hey, on Friday I saw this. Uh, Gallup poll, the belief in God, continues to drop. Now, Americans, by and large, only 74% believe in God, which is down from 90% back in 2001. Less believe in angels, less in heaven, less believe in heaven, or rather hell or the devil. Now, what group of these uh, hold these four beliefs almost unanimously? Church-going Protestants, including those in non-denominational churches. For example, if you're a weekly attender of church, you're like 98% likely to believe in a God, 96% likely to believe in angels. Yeah, for those who attend monthly and those maybe once a month or less, that drops off pretty quickly. Now, church attendance doesn't necessarily cause these beliefs, but there is a strong correlation. The folks at Gallup, when they do, do these measurements, they're, be, they're measuring a behavior, an outward indicator, but there's an underlying inward faith component that's kind of harder to measure, so they go with the outside indicator. Now, with that in mind, 
One area where attendance of church is a factor, especially when we look at men and how they perceive their masculinity and live it out. The question I want to leave you with before we go to break is how does church attendance and the underlying faith component affect how men view their relationships with women, with children, and the broader culture? Professor Nancy Piercy will be who's dug into the data. She joins us in three minutes here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Ah, conservative, Bible-believing Christian men, they're patriarchal, misogynistic, they're prone to be abusive, right? I'm Paul. This is Mornings with Carmen, just without Carmen today here on Faith Radio. Yeah, I know such men gave rise to the Me Too movement and Church Too hashtags, didn't they? Now, that's the general view of our culture today, but is it true when you dig into the research about Christian men, especially those who are very faithful Christian men as far as their attendance to church and such, does this bear out? To answer this and many more questions, Professor Nancy Piercy joins us. She's with Houston Christian University, and she's the author of the new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Nancy, thanks for joining us here on Faith Radio again. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I, I'm sure Carmen would love to have this conversation, but I'm kind of glad I get to have it because it meant I had to read into the book, and I was just kind of going, oh, really? Oh, really? All throughout it. So actually, let's start with some of the good news, Nancy. Let's start with your research findings. Well, actually, just the research findings, especially when it comes to Christian men. Are such men the oppressive, domineering types that we read about in the news? Yes, that, that is how I start the book. I wanted to start with the good news because I was blown away when I started to do this research. I had no idea how positively Christian men would test out so these were social scientists, both psychologists and sociologists. I have more than a dozen studies that I survey in the book. And I had heard, like you, that Christian men are the most likely to be abusive. In fact, I'll just give you one quote. It was easy to find lots of them, but I'll give you one. So this was from the co-founder of the Church Too movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And this person said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating Christianity today. And the, the social scientists were looking at this and said, well, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these accusations. Where's your evidence for it? Where's your data? So they went and did the studies. And what they found out is that evangelical Protestant Christian men actually test out as the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. Now, some people say, well, of course, their wives said they were happy. Their husband was sitting there. But no, they interviewed the wives separately. So what they were actually reporting is that the wives say they have the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. They test out as the most engaged fathers, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce, and the real stunner was this. They are the least likely to commit domestic violence and abuse mm. any group in America. So this was astonishing, and it's not generally known. I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this material, and that's one reason I really wanted to write this book and make this better known. Wow, just Again, Nancy, this is interesting because... 
it, it goes so far against our culture. Now, we've had some other conversations over the last few months. I've talked with uh, Josh Wagner uh, about male masculinity, you know, masculinity issues and how to be non-toxic. And we also recently talked with, oh, I can't think of his name. I was, I was on vacation that week, but uh, Carmen talked with another gentleman from England about this very issue about having a biblical manhood, re- regaining that. And that really does make a difference. Now, we're not saying that self-described Christian men are not part of being oppressive, but there is a key factor between the more healthy masculinity, the researchers you outlined point, and those who just self-identify as evangelical Christian men. Explain that yeah. difference. Yes, that's a huge, it's a huge difference. Um, the, one of the first uh, questions I get is, but haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of society. In fact, in my research, I found that that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So the scientists, social scientists went back to the data and they did divide out, like you say, the men who actually attend church regularly, who, who believe it, who walk the walk, and merely nominal Christians. Uh, my, my students don't even know what the word nominal means. <laughs> yeah, name only. So, in name only. And these men, so these are men who might, in a survey like that, they might check the Baptist box, for example, because of their family background. Um, but they are cultural Christians. In other words, when, when they are asked questions about their own life, it turns out their wives report the lowest level of happiness. And they have the least, they are the least engaged with their children. They have the highest level of divorce, higher even than secular men, and they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. So this is why the statistics get so skewed. On the one hand, there are men who are better than the secular world, and there are Christian men who identify, who who use the label of Christian or evangelical, but who actually function worse than secular men. And so obviously that's why the statistics get so skewed. And it also suggests what we can do about this, uh, you know, in, in the church, for example, on the one hand, we should be encouraging Christian men who are doing a good job because typically uh, they, they feel demeaned and demoralized because our culture tends to be hostile to masculinity. When I told my class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So Christian uh, men feel that, yeah, they, they feel that demeaned and demoralized. Um, uh, uh, there's a psychotherapist who writes for the Wall Street Journal, and she said the the boys, the young men in particular, who are coming into my practice, feel defeated and beaten down because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. A few years ago, a study found that 46% of American men say that these days society seems to punish men just mm-hmm. for acting like men. That's a lot of men. That's, that's almost a, half. Yeah, that is. So whether you agree or not, that's a lot of people who think that men are getting a bad deal now. Yeah. So we should, we should be bringing out the positive data. I mean, this is not some pep talk. Mm-hmm. You know, this is hard empirical evidence. And we should be bringing it both into our churches and into the public realm, because this is this is empirical social science data. And we have evidence based message now that Christian men actually do 
that Christianity reconciles the sexes, to use the subtitle of my book. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that's the interesting thing because, as you mentioned, those who are nominal Christians, who are not regular church attenders, don't really actively live out their faith, although identifying as Christian, you pointed out they tend to be worse than even the general culture. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a bit puzzling. Um, you know, the researchers are data crunchers, so they don't actually explain it. No. Um, but it seems to be this um, – they feel that so they've taken words they've taken christian words like headship and submission but because they're not really connected into the church they do not define these words with biblical meaning mm. instead they take the meanings from the secular culture and they define yeah. headship in terms of dominance and entitlement and control but here's the difference they feel as though they have religious justification for it. Yeah. So the secular guy might act the same way, but he does not have religious justification. And so the end end product is that these evangelicals who are merely claiming the label end up having the worst of both worlds. They have the secular definitions of masculinity, but they put a religious veneer over it and feel therefore that they even more justified. Again, we're talking with Nancy Piercy from Houston Christian Seminary, or rather, University, and also the author of the new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. And when we continue in 90 seconds, okay, let me give you a couple of phrases here. Define for me a good man, and define for me a real man. Are they the same in your mind? We're going to talk about that in just a few moments here on Faith Radio. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. So, if you're a guy, I know I am, are you a good man or a real man? I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio, and we continue our conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy from uh, Houston Christian University and the author of the new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. And early in the book, Nancy, you bring out a study that was done by a sociologist named Michael Kimmel. He was talking with some West Point cadets, and he asked them to define those two terms, and I want you to share what they said. Yes, this was fascinating, and I'll I'll give you the background on it since okay. it's not in the book, which is um, that this has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written, which surprised me because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, was on issues like homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, and yet this has proved to be even more controversial. I did several classes on it. I led several reading groups, and when they would tell their family and friends, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? Yeah. With that tone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like she must be either a male bashing feminist, which is what, what most men assumed, or she's some kind of angry reactionary. So I put this study right at the beginning of the book to sort of defuse that hostility. It was a study done by, as you said, Michael Kimmel, who's a well-known sociologist. And he started at West Point, but he also then used this experiment all around the world because he gets invited to speak everywhere from you know Brazil to Sweden to Australia. And he would ask young men two questions. He'd say, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? 
men all around the world had no trouble answering that question. They said things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, be generous. And, and Michael Kimmel was amazed. He said, look, people, men everywhere have an innate knowledge, an inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man. And by the way, what we would say is they're made in God's image. So mm -hmm. yes, they do have an inherent knowledge. Romans 2 says we all have a conscience. Um, and he would say, where did you learn that? They'd say, well, it's, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm -hmm. But then he would follow up with the second question. He would say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, oh, no, that's completely different. <laughs> that means things like be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm, I'm using their language yeah. there. And so clearly men are being torn between two competing scripts. On the mm -hmm. one hand, they do innately know what it means to be the good man, but they also feel cultural pressure to live, live up to traits that we might consider more toxic. And certainly if decoupled from the moral ideal of the good man, it can slide into toxic traits like entitlement and control and dominance. And so this suggests a better way of dealing with this issue. I, men don't respond very well to being called toxic, right? No. <laughs> Nobody does. But what we can do is try to tap into their innate, inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man. And we can encourage and affirm and, and support them in living out their innate knowledge of the good man. And this gives us a much more positive strategy for addressing these issues. Yeah, I guess I kind of look at it as you're describing the good man. My thought immediately goes to Jesus, who embodied that. I mean, come on. He was fully human. He was fully man. He, he embodied it perfectly. And we're called into that, and I also think about the fruits of the Spirit, and some people say, oh, that's kind of, you know, that's not really strong. That's It's incredibly strong, and it is incredibly masculine, as well as, you know, can be applied as well to femininity, but both embody those things, right? Well, exactly. Um, I do have a whole section in my book, The Toxic War and Masculinity, on Jesus, and we appreciate him even more when we recognize uh, the historical context. For example... Jesus saying, bring the little children into me, right? I mean, that sounds so Sunday schoolish. We think it's kind of a sentimental. Um, but in the Roman culture of the day, children were very, were, were very devalued. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were considered non-persons. It was common to beat them. Fathers had the right to kill their children for any reason, no reason, uh, no questions asked. Um, and children were considered weak, and children were awfully, often abused, including sexually abused. Children were often left out to die uh, upon birth. That was called exposure. They were exposed mm -hmm. to the elements. They were simply put out in nature and allowed to die. And some of these children were rescued. And I thought, well, that sounds good. And then I finished reading the sentence, and it says, they were rescued and then raised in sex brothels mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to in order to be you know, sex slaves. So when Jesus said, let the children come into me, that was revolutionary. Yeah. There's a whole book on the subject showing how Christianity 
is how we came to have a high view of children as precious beings that need special care. And so things like that, uh, it, that's just one example of how if we understand the culture of the day, we recognize just how revolutionary Jesus really was. We just got a couple minutes left, Nancy. And for those listening, and as you mentioned, you've had some pushback on the various social media platforms and some basically saying, oh, you're just being a reaction. You're just, you know, just sharing this reactionary uh, narrative. You probably, you know, being an academic, you've never experienced any problems. And you start out the book by being very transparent about your growing up. I, I want people to understand you didn't come about this because you had the idyllic life at all. Yeah, so this is a, it's kind of uh, feeling vulnerable telling my own story, but it's true that I was raised in a very abusive home. My father was physically abusive. In books on abuse, they sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? It was closed fist. Mm. Uh, he was punching and kicking, and it was a very traumatic childhood. And uh, I had to go through an awful lot of emotional, psychological, spiritual healing that lasted for years. And one Christian psychologist read the book and then told me, you know, you're not writing from some ivory tower, are you? No, you actually were in the trenches. You have actually had to personally work out the you know, what it means to have a healthy biblical view of masculinity. And let me throw out, talking about academics, let me throw out just one quote from the academic literature uh, because sometimes a single quote can really crystallize it for us. My main sociologist that I refer to, he he did the largest study on evangelical men, and he's at the University of Virginia, Brad Wilcox. Mm -hmm. And to give you some sense of his stature, he writes for places like the New York Times. So this is a quote from the New York Times. He said, it turns out, this is a direct quote, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Of course, they focus on the wise because the assumption is that conservative men are overbearing, domineering, tyrannical patriarchs. So they focus on the wives. The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services with their husbands regularly have high quality marriages. And then he turns to his secular colleagues. This is my favorite quote. He turns to his secular academic colleagues and says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices <laughs> against religious conservatives mm -hmm. and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Mm -hmm. So that's the academic literature and it's not just my personal um, experience, but it is my, like you said, I had to work through this through years and years of, uh, I, I, of course, naturally, I, I first veered off into feminism and spent many years as a feminist. And then when I started reading up on the studies actually done, evangelical men, I was as surprised as anyone else. Um, hey, Nancy, I, I hate to do this. We have to stop it right there because I, again, I encourage people, get the book, Toxic, The Toxic War and Masculinity. We're just out of time, Nancy, but thanks again for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. Thanks so much. I enjoyed talking with you. This is Faith Radio. Well, again, thanks for listening to Faith Radio and Mornings with Carmen. Remember the podcast up later this morning at myfaithradio.com. 
I'm Carmen LaBurge. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Remember, it's your prayerful and faithful financial support that makes both the live show and the podcast available. Make your gift at MyFaithRadio.com.